Good morning, good day, good evening, whatever time you are listening to this. This is another episode of Grow With Greg podcast, a unique perspective of our world through our own uh, eyes. And today we are learning a little bit more about the San Diego Zoo with Gabriela Munoz. Uh, Today's episode... I had so many questions, so many rambling tangents rolling around through my head that I was stuttering on my words a little bit. Uh, the audio is split up into two sections because I accidentally canceled out recording a little bit. So please be keep that in mind while you're listening to today's podcast. But the content is on fire. Gabriella is a wealth of knowledge. Uh, you know, we could have talked for another three, four hours and I would have been completely enthralled and entertained. So I hope you feel the same way. And, um, you know, give me some feedback after you're done listening to it. So enjoy the episode with another one of Grow With Greg podcast. And it's on. Things are happening. Recording has started. Awesome. <laughs> um, well, tell me a little about yourself. Besides work. Besides work. Yeah. Okay. Who are you? Well, my name is Gabriela Munoz. Sometimes I go by Gabby. Okay. And I grew up in the New England area and then have moved all over for work, um, which has been a great experience. Okay. My parents uh, are both retired flight attendants now, but from a young age have done a lot of traveling, which has been such a blessing. I've been able to go... Um, I've visited all continents except for Antarctica. That's the really? last one on oh, my bucket. Damn. I got Africa Focus. and Antarctica to go. Yeah, there you go. Well, technically, my Africa feels more like the Middle East because I was in Cairo. So I feel like I still really have more Africa, traditional Africa safari sort of to yeah. go. But Would you um, go on a safari? I would. There are a lot of great ones out there. Do in that. fact, I'm waiting for work to actually send me. So we'll see what happens. But fingers crossed. So that is a great segue of why would your work send you to Africa for a safari? <laughs> so my full-time job, and it's uh, I've worked with animals for most of my life, but I'm a zookeeper for the San Diego Zoo. Um, I've been here at the San Diego Zoo for about three and a half years, and it's uh, a total privilege and honor to take care of such unique and highly endangered rare animals. So, yeah. That's cool. Um, so eight bajillion questions uh, flooded into my head when I found out you were a zookeeper and all that kind of good stuff. You sent me some as well. Uh-huh. Um, I will try to keep this as on a uh, uh, path, as you could say, uh, sure. as possible. But uh, let's just kind of start with the basic ones. Like, So what do you do as a zookeeper? So that's a great question. A lot of people hear zookeeper and they think one of two things. Either you're frolicking and playing with the animals all day or you're shoveling shit all day. And um, it's really neither. You do do a lot of cleaning. You um, have to be okay with a really physical, dirty job. Um, But my primary purpose as a zookeeper is to take the animals that I'm charged with taking care of for that day, and it can change from day to day, making sure their immediate welfare is met and exceeded. So what does that mean? That's just like a really fancy technical jargon that a lot of zookeepers use. It means that we go in and check on our animals first thing, and then we'll often get their morning rations together. So some animals 
eat and graze throughout the day. So you're gonna pull, put out maybe a lot of hay or pellet, pelleted food for your hoofstock. Um, if you have carnivores, they're only gonna eat once a day, if that. And so you're gonna make sure that you have your meat or rabbits or whatever you're feeding your carnivores for the day good to go and then um, you often will call those animals inside to their bedrooms um, most of the time they have access in and out of both their bedrooms and their exhibit area or yards um, overnight so when you're in first thing in the morning you want to be able to go and clean the main exhibit space so the space is good to go when the guests arrive at 9 a.m we get in at around 6 a.m so half pause one second I yeah 8,000 questions already one of them was uh so do you have like a preferred animals like and then b like are you you said hooves stock yeah so that I'm pretty I'll sure i know that. what that is yeah <laughs> but like so do are you like a specialist in one kind or like you like do you do with penguins and like giraffes or like so great question so in terms of like preferred animals it's really a tough question. I don't think a single zookeeper really has a number one top animal they work with. Really? Because um, my friend Lindsay Renteria would 100% be only with the penguins if she could. All day, <laughs> every day, obsessed with penguins. But what species of penguin? There are lots of different know. species, see? <laughs> so there you go. No, I mean, it, some maybe some people do. But for me, my I'm really drawn to the gregarious, intelligent, socially complex animals. So things like your marine mammals. Um, specifically, I really like pinnipeds, so seals and sea lions. They're kind of like big dogs that swim super gracefully. I think they're hilarious and super smart. Um, I also love elephants. Uh, the first time I ever got to work with elephants was when I uh, started my job out here at the San Diego Zoo, so that's really been fun. And then uh, I love polar bears. They're the largest land carnivore in the world. They're dangerous to work with for that reason, just like ele elephants, even though they're not carnivores, they're the largest land mammal in the world so um land animal in general so also dangerous so I, i'll go into kind of what we do to mitigate that danger uh risk for injury and death but those are my top three um and then your other question was do we specialize and mm -hmm. some zoos you'll be assigned an area it might be a geographic area of the world and you will work with everything from birds to reptiles to mammals um, and within your mammal group it could be everything from primates to carnivores to hoofstock and hoofstock's basically anything like your cows your antelope your um, pigs rhinos things like that so animals that have basically uh, big nails or hooves at the end of their feet so that's a hoofstock. So other zoos will have you specialize. So you might only work with big cats all day, every day. Um, some areas, I'm in the mammals department, so I really only work with mammal, uh, which is great. They are my favorite. Um, I have worked with birds in the past, including penguins, which was a fabulous experience, but I would say they aren't my thing. They're not my absolute favorite. Um, I've worked with primates in the past, and that's kind of the only mammal that is not in the mammal department at the San Diego Zoo, they're their own department. So um, all the monkeys, the great apes, they are in their own um, division, so to speak. So they have their own yep. head own, of house, head yep. of, like whatever. Like, yep, so they have their own managers, supervisors, lead keepers, and then a team of keepers that take care of those why is that? Um, so it's a great question. So there are a few reasons. One, primates, again, 
very smart animals. So they want to make sure that their needs are being met um, in terms of enrichment and training. So the USDA and AZA, AZA stands for the American, uh, or sorry, the um, Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and they set the national standards for accredited facilities. So they end up, um, you know, setting regulations to make sure that at least the bare minimum of animal welfare is met. We at the zoo hope to exceed that, um, and we often do. And so as a result, um, great apes, for instance, they're required to have, I want to say, about 10 different enrichment opportunities throughout their day. So they want to make sure that they have the team that can specialize in that and make sure that those animals needs are met. Um, I personally think that um, if you can work with you know carnivores or you can work with um, small carnivores or um, hoofstock you could also work with primates and I have worked with primates in the past at other facilities um, but there are extra precautions you also have to take into account with zoonotic diseases. So monkeys and great apes can give you illnesses and you can also give them illnesses, which actually is probably gonna be more the case because we're the ones who are out in the greater public getting sick and then bringing those potential diseases into the zoo. So um, often you'll see people wearing um, long sleeves and pants with their uniforms. They'll wear a mask when they're working with certain animals, like a surgical mask, um, just to make sure that there's uh, a lower risk for transmission. Airborne yeah. transmission. Yeah. Mm -hmm. First thing that reminded me of is like school teachers. Yeah. Like going into like the human zoo of school. 100% a human zoo. <laughs> the human zoo. Yeah. Uh, where knowledge and challenges are hopefully being met and their well-being is, you know, yeah. <laughs> hit a standard of, hopefully exceeded. Yeah. Um, but, like, teachers are always ones getting sick. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, I can see how. Or they have, like, killer immune systems. One of the two. One or the other, yeah. <laughs> They're either impenetrable or always on their deathbed yeah. somehow still educating the youth. Right. So, either way, uh, hats off to them. Yeah, um, totally. And all yeah. those parents with the kids that bring home stuff to their parents, oh they get gosh, sick, too. A friend of mine, the kid had <laughs> foot and mouth disease, like, three times in a year. Yeah. Like, Wait, what? A, foot and mouth disease. And just yeah. Whatever. Weird. It's crazy. There's all kinds of weird stuff out yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so many questions. <laughs> um, okay. So, so I didn't really get to finish my day. Should oh, I finish yeah. the rest of my day? Yeah, what's the going way on that with works? Your day? <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fine. Recap. We're so many uh, like <laughs> tangents you can go yeah. off on. So after you know you bring your animals into their bedrooms, then you can go out and set the the yards that the guests are going to view a lot of these animals in. So. Um, you're not just cleaning, but you're also disinfecting things and um, you're setting out their food for the day. And um, we create what we like to call enrichment experiences, which is basically where we're giving the animals an opportunity to do a behavior that's natural to them. So we wanna make sure that if they are elephants, that their food is up high because the majority of their day is spent reaching into treetops, pulling down branches, and consuming the bark, the leaves, the wood, um, or the hay that we'll also put up high because they eat so much food in a day, we have to make sure that we're meeting their caloric needs. And unfortunately, we just can't grow enough um, tree branches to feed out to them. So part of their diet is what we refer to as browse, which are tree branches, and then part of it is hay, and then 
as training treats, we'll use things like fruit and stuff like that. So we set the yards. Um, some animals will be called in multiple times throughout the day so that we can put out different things. And sometimes we have different groups of animals that share the same yard. So um, for half the day, you might have your bachelor group of gorillas inside. And for the second half of the day, they're out on the yard. Did you say bachelor? Bachelor group, yeah. Uh, we have bachelor groups of animals, which oh, okay. is yeah a whole nother thing. But yeah, after you... Is that so you're not making babies in the zoo all the time? Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, it would be great if everyone could breed all the time whenever they wanted to. Just let nature take its course. But <laughs> we, we can't because they... Uh, one, we don't want inbreeding. And two, we closely monitor the genetics of our animals because, of course, we're dealing with critically endangered animals and we want to make sure that we're... Um, maximizing the potential for genetic diversity in a really controlled, well thought out way so that we basically have a living arc of animals should a population collapse in the wild. So that's a, a big part of the function of a zoo these days. But yeah, so um, you might rotate yards between your bachelor group and your uh, family breeding group. And then um, while they're out doing their thing, doing their quote unquote job, hanging out, um, doing their natural behaviors so the guests can observe them and enjoy them. Um, we're inside cleaning the bedrooms and getting them ready for the night. And then throughout the day, we'll be doing things like training sessions with our animals, or we'll be interfacing with other researchers or veterinarians based off of what the animals needs are for that day. We'll have routine physical exams for our animals. And then sometimes just like us, our animals will get hurt or sick and the vet will have to come down for that. Luckily, the vet comes to us. We often don't have to take the animals up to the hospital unless it's for a full sedated exam. Which hospital? So, yeah, great question. The, uh, <laughs> like the hospital, hospital at the zoo, what? we have our own hospital oh, okay. with a CT scanner and uh, radiographs and surgical suites. Um, is literally behind the Old Globe Theater. So there's a row that divides it, and then, of course, we have fencing. So we're almost a stone's throw away from the main hospital for the zoo. Okay. So it's kind of weird to think about, but there are animals being there's treated right zoo. now by uh, a team yeah. of experts one thing that caught my ear is mm -hmm. that you said you grow a lot of trees for like the elephants wait so okay elephants are from africa or, or asia sorry or asia yes yep not america not in san diego yeah yet you're growing trees like what trees are they eating like are you growing like african trees in san in like balboa park somewhere and then you're like yeah just cutting sometimes them down? Like <laughs> so for instance the eucalyptus that you see throughout san diego county mm -hmm. is not endemic to san diego it was actually introduced here so um it i heard it was introduced by uh roosevelt for the railroad tracks it might have been. I have no yeah, clue. They thought the eucalyptus would, it grows well in this area, like yeah. in Australia, and they thought it'd be hard enough for the railroad ties. Yeah. But then they found out it wasn't, and so now <laughs> we just have a whole bunch of eucalyptus everywhere. Yeah, I, that sounds right, but I have no clue. I can tell you, though, when I it comes to... saw it on the to... internet, so it has to be true, right? <laughs> must be true. Yeah, it must be true. Um, we actually, our plant collection is worth more money than our animal collection which is crazy to think about. Um, we have an amazing team of horticulturists who come in every day and they help with the propagation and trimming of a lot of the trees that we feed out to our animals. Most of them are grown on grounds, but we actually have a grove of eucalyptus that's out in Scripps Ranch. And then we have other groves of um, 
acacia and eucalyptus up at the safari park so that's like our sister facility and they have a lot more space than we do because they're not confined to um uh basically city parks so (laughs) yeah so um i think we have something like the equivalent of three nationally registered botanical gardens on zoo grounds Mm -hmm. and i've heard from multiple people and friends who visited the zoo who say hey your animal collection was great but we were actually blown away by the plants they just love the landscaping. They loved how it's lush a whole it was. Ecosystem yeah. in there. I it's mean, like you go cool. into some of the valleys, and it feels like it's about to rain, and it's like dry, sunny day, yeah. like out in the rest of the park. Yeah, we are so lucky. We have the probably one of the most ideal climates for animals in general. Um, Except for polar bears. You know, the polar bears, not so much, <laughs> but we do a skinny. lot to accommodate them. Actually, so the water's chilled. Um, they have a a smaller blubber layer so they don't have to worry about overheating or anything like that so that's what happens to everybody when you move to san diego (laughs) you just lose the blubber layer you shed some clothes everyone's outside working out exactly (laughs) looking looking good good. feeling good ready to go yeah yeah i mean it's not a bad life Mm -mm. yeah but to be fair i mean even though it is warmer here than some of our arctic animals our arctic fox and our reindeer they all reindeer here yeah we have three reindeer currently are they like, I was just at the zoo like a couple days ago. Yeah. Where is the reindeer? They are in between the Arctic fox and the raccoon, our random raccoon granite that we have. And the, which is basically in the Arctic is it a passage special raccoon, area. raccoon or is it just like a normal uh, like street panda? <laughs> trash panda. Trash panda? Yeah. yeah. No, she's a total trash panda. She was a rescue um, and she was supposed to be an educational animal that they could take out to schools. Yeah. But she's a very feisty lady and mm. just was not having that. So she became too dangerous to work free contact. So she became our little random raccoon that we have on exhibit in our Arctic passage area. So yeah, the reindeer, long story short, are kind of near the uh, polar bears. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, How does one get into such an interesting and varied degree and field (laughs) as a zookeeper? Um, Are you a doctor? I am not a doctor. Um, You don't need a college degree technically to be a zookeeper. Um, So most people do have a college degree. Back in the day, it just wasn't a requirement. They just wanted hands-on experience. And now, um, you know, considering the job has become more technical in terms of collaborating with researchers and veterinarians, and a lot of zookeepers will do their own research as well and present at conferences, um, it really is encouraged to have a four-year degree, usually in biology or psychology. And is then, there a zoology degree out there? You can. Those programs have really been cut because a lot of academia has felt that the study of animals, though interesting, um, it is embodied by lots of different disciplines like the genetics of animals or the ecology of animals or um, the behavior of animals. So they don't have strict zoology departments anymore. You would just specialize in genetics or ecology or behavior. And that makes kind of sense, right? Yeah. You wouldn't want to study in a false environment kind of thing. You want to like learn about natural, right? right? Like be an expert in this bamboo so I can keep pandas alive. Kind right, of thing. right. Yeah. So I actually did go to a zoology program for my master's degree. Okay. Um, so it 
covered everything from animal behavior and ecology and lots of different things. It's one of the few programs still out there, which I love. It was a perfect fit for me. Um, and I ended up getting a post-baccalaureate certificate in zoo and aquarium studies. So it was a specialized, I know, right? <laughs> um, it, it's a one-year program that you can do, or I'm not sure if it still exists anymore, actually, at Western Illinois University. Um, and a lot of your classes are taught at the Shedd Aquarium or Brookfield Zoo. So when I finished my four-year degree at Bates, um, I knew I wanted to work with animals, and I thought I wanted to go on to my PhD to do research. So um, I had a self-designed major, which was awesome, an interdisciplinary major in the biology and psychology of animals. Um, and then I took a year off to do research, and then I got into this master's program. Um, my advisor, her specialty was marine mammal bioacoustics, and I had been doing some marine mammal research. Uh, like for talking to dolphins? Yeah, not quite talking to dolphins, but yeah, recording them talking to each other. Uh, we're trying to figure out what they're saying, though, which would be amazing. Um, so yeah, we... Um, or I, I guess, uh, did some research for the New England Aquarium down in Florida for a little bit. And then I was in Iceland working for a whale watching company for a little bit. And then I got into this program and I started taking classes at Brookfield Zoo and the Shedd Aquarium and just fell in love with the field and thought, man, do I really want to sink a hundred grand into a PhD to potentially teach, which is something that I'm not thrilled with the idea of teaching college students. I really enjoyed teaching in an informal environment. Um, you know, I worked at an animal shelter where I was involved with the behavior program uh, in the dog department, and I got to oversee a bunch of volunteers and teach them all about positive reinforcement training and um, the best way to modify behavior humanely. And that was really, really rewarding, being able to share that information in an informal setting, but um, in like a traditional college setting where you have the pressure of publish and perish, I just, it wasn't for me. So I thought, man, if I could work hands-on with animals all day and spend 20 minutes at the end of my day in front of the, a computer, that would be perfect, while still being able to do my own research and present to conferences and, um, yeah, just, uh, I, I guess, follow my passion, working with animals. So, you mentioned changing animal behavior humanely. Yeah. So go into that a little bit more like well I'm just giving them treats and hopefully something will happen like <laughs> <laughs> what does that look like well I mean some people train that way but it's um, maybe not always going to have the best outcome but a big part of being a zookeeper is helping animals to navigate human care in a easier less stressful way so one of the ways we do that is through positive reinforcement training. And that's basically where we give something that the animal enjoys, typically food, um, for the completion of, be of a behavior that we've trained them to do. Um, and then it makes that behavior more likely to occur again in the future. So that's kind of positive reinforcement in a nutshell. Now that being said, we don't live in a true vacuum where I can say, oh yeah, the animal never experiences anything adversive ever. You know, we have um, some dogs at the San Diego Zoo that are pair bonded with our cheetahs, which are so ambassador cool. cheetahs, and they will actually take them out for walks on leashes. And um, though they love the walks, um, just the fact that they're on a leash and they can't go wherever they want to go means that 
potentially that animal isn't getting what they want, right? So it's not always positive all the time because they can't run off in some direction. Of course, it's for their own safety. Um, but the safety of small children. Yeah, that are small children, but our, our cheetahs and dogs are very well trained. Um, so yeah, it's something that we aspire to on a daily basis. And um, our animals don't even really know what the word no means. So um, even if they do something that we don't want them to do, or it's not the correct response, um, we might just pause for a couple of seconds and then move on to another behavior that's easier that they know how to do so we set them up for success. Because we want them to associate interactions with us in the most positive light so that anytime we wanna do a training session with them, they aren't getting frustrated, they're having a great time, and um, they're more likely to do it again for us in the future. And it can get to the point where it is such a positive experience for them that animals like our lions will let us hold their tails so that we can draw blood from it. And they'll lay there calmly while we hold their tail so we can do that without having to sedate them. Because anytime you have to sedate an animal to do any sort of medical routine procedure, um, there's a risk that they um, could be harmed by the anesthesia. So yeah, humans too. Yeah, humans too, exactly. <laughs> like. So we don't anesthetize humans every time we have to draw blood from them, or hopefully we don't have to. But um, same thing with our animals, our elephants, they will present their ears for us. That's a common place to do blood draws for uh, elephants. And um, they usually do so very willingly. Of course, it doesn't happen overnight. That behavior takes months, sometimes years, for some animals to learn and feel comfortable doing. Um, but it's all based off of this amazing report they build with the trainers and um, the veterinarians and the vet techs. So we're really lucky that um, we have a um, great management team that supports that kind of training. It takes time out of our day to do that sort of training. And um, the zoo is great about that. Okay. Have one good question, and then I want to hit the like. I'm gonna hit some controversial topics sure. real quick because I got some some things I want to ask. Um, what's your spirit animal? Oh, good question. Okay, so I'm a firm believer that you don't really get to pick a spirit animal. That usually your friends should assign you a spirit animal. So in college, I remember a lot of our friends were like, oh, you're, you know, they were talking about each other. You know, one person was a panda, one person was a pig. Um, you just pointed to yourself. <laughs> I was not either oh. of those. Um, I actually was assigned like this wild, untamed, unbridled Arabian horse. So that was okay. what was assigned to me. I do love horses, um, but I also love marine mammals. So I would love to think that I'm like, a dolphin or a sea lion or beluga whale or something like that but um i'll stick with horse for now yeah okay okay uh, i'm a monkey 100 percent uh <laughs> given to me self-proclaimed uh even right. as a small child uh i climbed everything 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 um one of the more hilarious uh times I've had at a sporting event. Uh, mm -hmm. I was probably around 10 or 11 years old. Okay. And, uh, so old enough to know better. Old enough to know better. <laughs> and also for me, I, I was always a tiny human being, uh, tall enough to do said activity, which was um, I had to go to the bathroom. And uh, my mom walked me to like the bathroom and she let me go in there all by myself. And then like five minutes later, I haven't come out. 10 minutes later, I haven't come out. But every guy who comes out of the bathroom, they're uh, looking up as they walk out and laugh because there's a <laughs> narrow hallway before it turns out. And I have shimmied up, you know, my feet on one wall, hands on the other uh -huh. wall, all the way up to the top. And then now I am stuck 
<laughs> at the top. And uh, yeah, and uh, just like, I don't know, there's just something about me that doesn't really think of the consequences of uh, okay. after climbing That's super That's very monkey-like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> a little impulsive and just, you know, really yeah. good at climbing things. Okay. Yeah. So are you a rock climber now or uh, any other climbing I have going an, on? I have enough hobbies in my life right now that like I would love to add rock climbing into it. Uh -huh. I, I've gone a bunch with a, fr a couple of friends of mine, uh -huh. but like... I don't know, there's just a bunch of other things that I like to do more than, mm -hmm. I don't know. We're adulting now, so yeah. there's not as much time to do all the fun activities. Right. So, like, Lame. if you were to invite me to go rock climbing, 100% I'm in. Like, yeah. And I'm proficient enough to know what I'm doing. Yeah. It's usually best if I, like, watch someone else do the problem and then, like, I can yeah, mimic yeah, yeah. pretty easily. Yeah. But again, so less whole, likely of getting stuck up top. Yeah. And there's gear and all that safety equipment. Most of the time. Most yeah. of the time. Yeah, no, that's that's funny. Yeah, every time I'm at the zoo and we're telling you know kids to not climb on the railing or not climb on this or that parents shouldn't be putting their kids over railings because of accidents that can happen and have happened, I'm always saying to myself, man, they are such primates. Oh my God, they just have to touch everything and climb on everything. Yeah. And it's just, it's a funny thing. It, as a zookeeper, I think most of us are like this. We'll watch other human behavior and be like, oh yeah that's totally like a chimp or like oh yeah they're acting like an orangutan or oh yeah total bonobo so so yeah. do you even like human beings of those creatures i mean you're a zoo animal <laughs> you're around other animals all the time like no i do a lot of people <laughs> who go into the animal field they're like i hate humans i never want to work with people that's yeah. why i'm working with animals and that is kind of the last worst attitude to have because every animal has people tied to it. You know, all the animals at the zoo, there are a bunch of curators and managers and directors who oversee everything and you have to listen to them if you want to keep your job, right? So there are all those people you have to answer to. And then you have all the guests who are there who are passionate about the animals too that you want to share all this amazing knowledge with them about. So hopefully they care about the animals and conservation messaging so that we pass legislation that'll help protect them or they'll make different decisions in terms of cars they purchase or other things like that. So um, I wouldn't be able to at least stay in the animal field if I didn't love people as well. So we are kind of one of the most destructive species. I do get exasperated. Um, we can be just really brutal and our intelligence definitely makes and breaks us. Um, we're in a real bind right now. We're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. Um, we're losing animals at a faster rate than we did at the last mass extinction, which was about 12,000 years ago during the last ice age. So um, it is kind of dire out there. It's, I think if you thought about it every day, especially if it's your profession, it would be hard to come to work every day. But um, it's uh, so rewarding and so important to me and such a part of who I am that you just, you just do it. Okay, now we're getting into the controversial stuff where I wanted to sure. go since the beginning. But uh, so, like most uh, environmentalists, kind of piggybacking off of your last comment, don't last very long. You'll see like a young, hungry environmentalist, but then sure. they realize us human animals aren't really the most uh, good at long term thinking. We like yeah. short term gains and, you mm -hmm. know, put the problems off till later. Yeah, that's do why you, we're. Do you see like a high turnover rate in zoos as well because of like just yeah. burnout or. Uh, yes. Because you're seeing animals no. like left and right. Because like right now, the like, first thing I want to ask you is like, okay, you said a, a potential animal collapse and like koalas are now like essentially going to be possibly extinct because of how much burning of the Australian yeah. bush is happening. Mm -hmm. Like, 
So is everybody just like trying to breed koalas in zoos right now? And like, oh shit, we need to like worry about them. Maybe hold on to them for a little while before the trees grow back kind of thing. Like, yeah. No. That, <laughs> so, okay. We'll start with your first like part of your questions. questions. Um, <laughs> In terms of burnout, so there are there are two different things that happen in the animal field. There's burnout where basically, you know, you might not be quite as passionate about your job as you used to be. Then there's compassion fatigue, which is um, basically like an episode of depression. And you stop caring about things and um, people have committed suicide actually because of compassion fatigue. Um, you, tr- you care so much and you try so hard and yet all these other... Yeah apes running around running this planet uh keep destroying everything yeah so i see more burnout with zookeepers and less compassion fatigue i see more zookeepers maybe have to change maybe the department they're working in or the group of animals that they're in they just need a change of pace um they might go to a different zoo um but most of the time when zookeepers leave the field, it's due to pay. Um, it does not pay well, even though really? most of us have four-year degrees. Um, it, it's a nonprofit job. It's an animal job. And the downside to loving your job and your employers or directors knowing you love your job is that they know you'll still do it for little to no money. So um, that kind of works against you. And I think in a way it's great that there are still some unions that exist out there to advocate on behalf of their workforce. Um, San Diego Zoo is a union zoo for their zookeepers, which um, is great. So we are paid higher than a lot of uh, the other um, accredited zoos nationwide. Um, That being said, cost of living is still really high here in San Diego. So I can't say that we're making a lot of money at all. So (laughs) it's like great on the one hand and not so great on the other. So, Um, but what's more concerning is people who work in the animal sheltering fields um, that you see a lot of um, neglect and um, just animals in really rough shape and animals in really dire situations and um, I see more people who are suffering from compassion fatigue who are just really unhealthy and either struggle with alcoholism or thoughts of suicide and things like that. I only lasted two years in that field. Before I moved out here to San Diego, I worked um, for a large private animal shelter in Kansas City. I was the canine behavior manager and I loved it and I felt like I really impacted the program and got a lot of projects done in two years. But, um, you know, I sat on an animal welfare board where we had to make euthanasia decisions. So you're having to decide whether or not a healthy animal lives or dies you know sometimes they're not healthy you know which is a clear-cut case where you know if they cannot be helped medically and they're suffering physically that they um, should be humanely euthanized I'm so happy we have that option because um, watching an animal suffer at end of life stages is really brutal so um, but when you have a dog with a behavioral issue which is the part that I oversaw and you know that if you could get, just get them out of the shelter and you had the right foster or the right home that knew how to be patient, who knew how to use positive reinforcement training, who could handle a dog that maybe didn't like other dogs or who had food aggression but would get over it after a month, especially being outside the stress of a shelter, that they would make it. Um, but unfortunately, there aren't enough homes like that, not that, that aren't either equipped or willing to take on a problem dog like that. So 
you have the option of either warehousing dogs and watching them kind of languish in a shelter for a couple of years or euthanizing them. So it's kind of that fine line of trying to advocate on behalf of the animal because you know that most likely are going to do better outside of the shelter or opting to euthanize them. So I, like I said, lasted about two years doing that. Too much emotional toil. Yeah. Toll. For sure. So koalas. Koalas. Liver, yeah. Liver <laughs> I technically do not work with the koalas, uh, but I do work with some um, yellow-footed rock wallabies. Um, all, all those animals are impacted by the fires. It's really devastating. Um, luckily, the zoo, um, I want to say last weekend, last Sunday, had a, maybe it was two Sundays ago. Anyway, it was a fundraiser where all of our profits and proceeds from both the safari park and the zoo went towards Australia Wildlife Conservation. So between both facilities and donations throughout the week, we raised over half a million dollars, which was great. Um, believe it or not, um, we have partnered with Australian researchers and zoos for over 100 years. So we have a great relationship with Australia and they um, we had a couple of researchers in, I want to say the Blue Hill Mountains, um, believe that's the region and that like outside of sydney yeah that subpopulation yeah, yeah the blue mountains thank yeah, you i've been there yeah there <laughs> that's you the go <laughs> <laughs> the um that pop subpopulation of koalas is one of the most genetically diverse groups of koalas so they're extremely valuable so the researchers knew that and ahead of time they pulled 10 koalas out of the wild to save them if the fires got to them and they weren't brought here to the zoo because we don't want them to have to travel half a world away just to come and hang out here for a little while until it was safe to release them back into the wild. Um, they are at, um, I believe, the Melbourne Zoo or Zoo Victoria um, over in that area being housed um, temporarily until they can be re-released. So. Can you re-release them after being in a zoo? You can um, for short periods of time um, and minimal interactions with humans. Um, they're one of those species that, as adults, don't seem to really imprint on people. Um, it's something you can do. <laughs> that is a misnomer. So eucalyptus is toxic to a lot of animals except koalas, and that's why they only eat eucalyptus is because they have the gut bacteria to break it down. Uh, but that being said, it's still not a very um, caloric. So yeah. they sleep for more hours out of the day, about 22 hours out of the day. Sloths are more active than koalas are, believe it or not. So, <laughs> yeah, it's um, a very unique niche that they've inhabited um, because most animals can't eat eucalyptus, but they can. And they don't have to compete with other species for it, which is why they do it. Yeah. So speaking of fires and California having fires, I mean, I know mm -hmm. we're we're in a, well, maybe not a lot of people know this, but we're in a part of a world where these fires are actually part of nature and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. Like, what is your opinion on like trying to manage or our, how is man managed, uh, human managed uh, fire prevention or whatever, like affecting nature as of right now like australia california yeah so there's a safe way to do it and i think a lot of it has also been just trial and error i, I think we didn't really know what we were doing when we were either not clear cutting forests or clear cutting forests and trying to figure out how we wanted to manage our wooded lands um fires are natural but not to the extent they currently are at because we are just 
go through such long periods of drought that you get such a buildup of brush that it becomes just this catastrophic fire. So I think a healthy way to do it, which would help both people and the environment is selective logging. So you're going in and you're cutting down trees, but you're not clear cutting an area. So you're providing more um, opportunities for other species of plants to grow in the undergrowth area. And um, you're still pulling out some of that excess fuel. What about like, I think it's the manzanita tree that like needs a fire in order for it to like reproduce yeah so there are some species of pine that um, for the pine cones to uh, basically produce the seeds or oh, basically I think it opens up the pine cone I think it's some something physical like that that allows them to germinate and uh, there are lots of places where they do controlled burns so that can be done in a safe way you all have to have you know plane standing by and it's a, it's a process. Um, you also see controlled burns on prairie land. I used to live in the Midwest where I went to grad school and you'd hear about um, people, some of my classmates participating in controlled burns on prairie land because that's also something that would happen naturally and it helps with a lot of young undergrowth, new growth, which is just part of the natural environment. Circle of life. Yeah. So then... I know you're not a climate scientist or anything like that, but so mm -hmm. like, this is a two-part question, is like, how much are you seeing like more animals? How are you gonna try to, how are we keeping up with like the mass extinction with the help of zoos? And like, mm -hmm. what is the overall purpose of a zoo? Is it to try to protect these things to hopefully, when we're done fucking up the planet, we can repopulate it? Like, so. It's super multifaceted, so. <laughs> I mean, originally the purpose of a zoo, um, you know, science, was right? Like, no. oh my God, look at this strange thing. Let's bring it back home and look at it. Yeah. So the Victorians were notorious <laughs> in, you know, England for just collecting things and categorizing things. You know, we had some amazing work from Darwin and um, Lamac and other researchers and. Uh, but zoos actually existed well before that, before the Victorian era. You would see accounts of zoos um, all throughout the world. It was kind of a status thing for people. If you were um, a king, you would have exotic animals and they would be collected for you from around you know, your conquests. So <clears throat> animals being held in human care, um, whether it was farm animals or exotic animals has been part of our legacy for thousands of years. Um, but I think most people, when they think of zoos, they think of like an animal behind bars in a urban setting and the animals have nothing to do and it's really sad. And zoos have evolved so much since then, um, you know, to be accredited, nationally accredited, there are really strict standards in terms of the appearance and size of your yard, the um, structure of your indoor holding areas or your stalls. Uh, and then there's a lot that goes on in terms of safety and containment, because obviously we don't want these animals getting out and harming anyone. That's a big part of a zookeeper's job is making sure everything is safely contained. Um, but yes, uh, the purpose of a zoo nowadays is twofold. It's conservation and then it's also education. 
So we wouldn't exist if people didn't attend zoos. You know, there are some private facilities that do animal breeding and research that maybe are only open to the public one or two days out of the year. Um, for instance, the Smithsonian has a great facility outside of DC that's open to the public a few days out of the year. But other than that, they it's just animal breeding and research. Um, and that's originally what the safari park was supposed to be. And then it was just became too costly to um, keep it, I guess, sort of a private facility and they decided to open it up to the public so that um, I believe that happened in, in the 70s or 80s that they um, started allowing guests to attend regularly. Um, but the original purpose of the safari park was so animals could go and breed. You look, you're, you got goosebumps. Let's get in the sun. It's okay. <laughs> we're at, we're at the cold. park. <laughs> um, okay, so the main point of a zoo is just to breed animals? Uh, no. no. So education. Education. And research and conservation. So we do that in lots of different ways. Um, we have an amazing education team that has kids, um, whether it's inner city kids or, um, you know, your traditional field trip kids um, or people who just want to do behind the scenes tours and get a little bit more in-depth information about our animals. Um, a lot of them have, you know, full teaching credentials, but they like the informal education setting. So um, a big part of a zookeeper's day is, uh, well, not necessarily a big part, but a part of the day is doing keeper chats and just talking about our animals and talking about why these animals may not be doing well in the wild, why they're endangered, and what you can do to help them. So, um, so it's education to help preserve the wild population? Like that's kind of where yeah. the angle is? 100% because um, if we're gonna survive as a species and the habitat that we love to vacation and see. I love how you said it that way. Most people you talk to about like conservation and all that kind of good stuff, they frame it on like, you got to save Earth. Uh -huh. And it's like, no, Earth's going to be fine. It's going to be around for a really, really, really yeah. long time. You know, like the I think Earth will exist without us. Exactly. Whether we're here it or did not. before and it'll yeah. do it after us. I think that like Neil deGrasse Tyson says we got like four billion years until the sun absorbs us and we inferno in yeah. incinerate. <laughs> yeah. So like I love how you said like to, for us to survive in our habitat because that's really what we're, we're right. altering our habitat so immensely. Right. And so how do we educate people to right. make a difference and preserve the way of life that we've had for the last 10,000 years since the last ice age or whenever it was. I'm yeah. not a scientist. Sorry if the dates are massively off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. If we're going to exist as a species, we have to try to preserve as much biodiversity as we can because that's kind of like um, putting reserves in a savings account. If you only have $1,000 left in your savings account, you have the opportunity to do X amount of repairs, whereas if you only have $300 in your savings account, that limits what you can do. So it's kind of the same idea with biological diversity. We want to try and maintain as many species as possible because they all to a certain extent serve a function. Some species are more critical than others for maintaining, I guess, uh, the balance of an ecosystem. A great example would be sea otters. They maintain or help keep sea urchin populations in check. 
And if you can't do that, then the sea urchins eat all the kelp and then your entire kelp forest dies and then the entire ecosystem or, um, collapses. So uh, luckily the U.S. was proactive about that. They outlawed the hunting of sea otters and the population has bounced back and those kelp forests off the coast of Monterey and here are doing a lot better than what they were. So we're lucky. And so that just, you know, goes to show you how important legislation is. Who you vote for is really important. Um, and I, not it, the president. It's <laughs> local politics. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a host of things. So I mean, the G8 summit, when it came to us deciding what sort of measures we were going to take to cut our carbon emissions so that we could try to keep the rise in our overall global temperature to two degrees or less. Two degrees um, Celsius. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it... Uh, Unfortunately, the U.S. got pulled out of that. And as the quote-unquote leader of the free world, I don't know if we're really setting a great example. I think uh, other countries have really stepped up and are doing a lot. And um, so I hope we kind of right the ship. Um, but right now, it's, it's frustrating. So what are some, like, easy things day-to-day -day regular people can do to try to help save more animals or help make a better yeah. impact on this world so <laughs> one thing that people don't really like to talk about is uh, population growth and actually the biggest decision that you can do to um, educate women <laughs> educate women is definitely part of it in terms of birth control and having access to um, or more control over their reproductive yeah. lives um, but basically Choosing not to have kids is one great way to uh, control your carbon footprint. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean you can't have kids if you really ha want to have kids. I eventually may want to have kids as well. Um, but uh, I don't want to have 10 kids. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, you know, back in the day, people came from big families. My dad is the oldest of six. My mom is one of five. Um, so it's definitely changing, and that's a good thing. Actually, the U.S. population it's is decreasing, right? Or well, the only reason why it's stable, not decreasing, but stable, is due to immigration. If we didn't have any immigration, our population would be decreasing, which also, in terms of the economy, would adversely affect the economy as well. So you just wouldn't see the same sort of growth that we are trying to project. So, yeah, it's this fine line between, um, you know holding steady and stable and growing and um, finding a really sustainable way to do that. Yeah. It's this part where like it's it's daunting just trying to like save the world or save our, our existence yeah. in this world, how it is operating and like, yeah. Okay. So besides not having babies, uh -huh. <laughs> besides that, besides not having babies, what is something else that we could do to try to like, yeah, you know, so um, car emissions are a big problem. Um, so switching over to a more fuel efficient vehicle, electric vehicle. Um, that being said, you know, electric vehicles or things that require batteries aren't 100% foolproof either. I mean, those... Um, Where's the power source come from? Yeah, well, they have to mine the all these things. Lithium, exactly. which is a massively... A carbon offset or a carbon producing yeah, endeavor. Not to mention it, you know, the 
the people who are doing the mining often are in horrible condition. Yeah. Um, so, but it, it is, if you're looking at the overall carbon footprint and everything, it's smaller. <laughs> um, not eating as much meat helps because you have to grow all the grain to produce the meat and then you have to ship the meat. So you don't have to become a total vegetarian. Um, you don't have to be vegan if you don't want to. It has been shown that if you eat more plants, it is healthier for you. So there's that. And then I think a lot of people like to say, oh, well, mono agriculture is really bad for the environment too. Um, it can be, but it you know, can also be done in a sustainable way. I think part of uh, big ag, so to speak, is trying to figure out how to feed as many people using the least amount of space possible, which I think is probably a really good thing because we don't want to develop as much uh, land or we, we don't want to try and be as destructive yeah, clear as cutting we are. the Amazon so we can have more cows. Right. Yeah. Sad. Um, yeah. That's that's a thing. So anyway, eating less meats, picking fuel efficient vehicles or appliances if you need to get new appliances, not having children, those are all things that you can do. But voting, that's like a big thing. Yeah. Let's not like not talk Forget about that, that. Yeah. yeah well a lot about that and there's some really good podcasts about that and i am not an expert in politics or anything like that but i know campaign finance reform is probably the number one thing that we need to do which is going to be the hardest thing to yeah do citizens united the people who get voted into politics get voted in by a certain system and they don't want to get voted out or right. be ousted so why would they Term change the way that too. yeah so but yeah, yeah I, <laughs> politics are not my thing. It's not yeah. my favorite thing, but you kind of can't get away from it when it comes to um, conservation, unfortunately, because one of the single most important pieces of legislation that has helped save a lot of species is the Endangered Species Act. And currently the administration is the first ever to try and change that and roll it back so that it makes it easier for businesses to or companies to develop land, use land in a way. Uh, because sometimes it can get a little annoying, I'm not gonna lie, if there's some rare endangered species of bird on this piece of land and you didn't know it existed, and it's, mm -hmm. you're like, oh, it's this tiny little songbird, like why can't we use this land? And then all of a sudden the um, EPA or another government agency says, no, you can't, you can't use it, sorry, there's this songbird on it. Like yeah. I get from a, a human perspective why that would be frustrating, but um, again, there are lots of animals that we wouldn't have, bison, um, wolves, things that were completely overhunted by American settlers that now exist because, yeah, because of we the had Endangered the, Species Act, yeah. which mind you was passed during Nixon. <laughs> so it's not necessarily due to political affiliation, like you can be a Democrat or Republican, a Green Party, whatever, third party, um, and still be pro-environment. Yes. So. It's weird uh, why that should be a political thing, you know? Yeah. Like, what's the harm in making the world better? I know. Oh. <laughs> crazy. Crazy, crazy thoughts. Cra crazy thoughts. <laughs> um, so, kind of thinking about troubles, issues, and ways to make things better. Um, what are you seeing as, like, the current challenges that zoos are facing? And um, what do you think that we can do to kind of like help out in that manner? Good question. Um, I would say, one second. 
I'm like freezing it's, here. Yeah, sun's setting. We could actually probably start walking. Just no, no keys bouncing <laughs> <laughs> like last time. So, I mean, just attending your local zoo, you're basically contributing directly back towards conservation. So becoming members, usually your membership will pay for itself after two visits at most facilities. Um, so whether you're here local in San Diego or you're in another part of the country or the world and you're listening to this, consider becoming a member at your local zoo um, or donating. If you just um, don't think you have the time to go, you can always just uh, make a donation. And that'll go directly towards conservation. At the San Diego Zoo, we have about 155 different research and conservation projects in 78 foreign countries. So um, you can rest assured that the money isn't just going towards the day-to-day -day care of the animals um, at your local zoo, but also to other international projects. So as a zookeeper animal lover, um, knowing that Robinson and Pickman Act is probably <laughs> one of the biggest things that uh, brings in money for conservation. What do you think about like, like African hunting safaris and like hunting large game animals, you know, for the sense of conservation actually? I, um, do you I think know it much sets, about that? Yeah, yeah, I think it sets a very dangerous precedent. Um, Yes, some of that money could go towards the conservation of animals, but if you really wanted to conserve animals, why do you have to kill them? You know, you could learn photography instead of shooting them, you could use your camera to shoot them instead. Um, it also, oftentimes when you're going on these big game safaris, you're going to a foreign country and you're basically saying that as a white foreigner, not always white, but oftentimes the people who engage in these activities are white men. Um, that if you have enough money and you're from the right country, you're allowed to kill these animals, but if you're a local person, you cannot. And uh, I think that's a very dangerous message to send to foreign countries. Um, I also think that, um, you know, if an animal's endangered, it's endangered and every individual counts and we shouldn't be killing them. Now, the even third... if it's like a angry rhino who's goring young, you know, being able to produce offspring, but this one's aged out and can't mate anymore. And they're just going around being an old dickhead and killing <laughs> a bunch of young rhinos. And then they're like, OK, cool. This guy's doing a ton of damage. We can get like three hundred thousand dollars to have some random guy come here from, you know, Idaho or whatever and take out this, you know, person who we'd have to probably just euthanize anyways. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of humane euthanasia. Okay. So you'd have to sedate the animal first and then um, so humane you'd euthanize it. You'd, I mean, you'd rather see them just like shoot some drugs up in them and humanely euthanize them than like make $300,000 and still probably, you know, kill them just as quickly with a well-placed shot? Yeah, 100%. Really? Because a lot of that money does not end up in the locations you think it does. Uh, sadly, it'll either go to the people who own that big game facility, um, even if it doesn't make it to a NGO or the national government conservation program, um, unfortunately due to a lot of corruption, um, that money isn't going back to preserve those animals. So it's really hard as a 
foreigner coming in to do that and then making sure your money ends up where you think it's going to, um, you have very little control over it after it leaves your hands. Well, what about then say local, say like deer hunting? We're both from areas where deer populations, because of killing their natural predators, there yeah. is nothing to keep them in check. And if there wasn't for hunters, they yeah. would just take over. The population would get so bad, then they would there wouldn't be enough food, and then they would die of starvation, which is a horrible death. Or they die from like a mountain lion or a bear, which is going to be way slower and way more painful than like a well-placed shot. <laughs> so hunting here in the U.S., it's well-managed for the most part, and it's not endangered species. It's on your own local turf. I am totally down for that if you are a good shot. Um, <laughs> I used to think that everyone said, oh, hunting's such a sport. Well, with a, a massive rifle, is it really a sport? I don't, I don't really think it is. But have you done I, it? I have not done it, but I have gone shooting. Do you eat meat? I do eat meat. I would suggest. <laughs> From, from a person who has harvested lots of their own game meat from fish to deer to things in between, you, you trust and respect and you, you have a different viewpoint on the meat that you are consuming. 100%. Which is completely different than like say going to the grocery store and buying a steak. Yeah. You know? No, like if you I go out there and you like that. go kill the deer and have to gut it in the forest and you know bring it out and process it and you have much yep. more personal relationship with that you know yeah i i don't disagree with you at all in fact i think a lot of those animals were able to lead a much more fulfilling life than all a lot of our animals that are factory farmed i personally only eat poultry and fish for the most part because i just couldn't bring myself to kill a pig or kill a cow um, I could see myself if I wanted to or needed to, to kill a chicken or fish, so. Why do you think it's easier to kill a fish or a chicken over a cow or something else? Um, I think it's due to the mental complexity, their emotional response. Um, that's not to say that fish don't have emotions or chickens don't have emotions. Like I've very much heard that chickens can be affectionate and they know the, their caretakers well. Um, but for me, that's what would be easier for me. So it's an ideological hierarchy of what animal is like <laughs> better than others? No, I mean, 100%, I'm not saying, yeah. I'm not saying you personally. Yeah. All right, part two, take two. Part two. Two week break between conversations. Uh, technical difficulties. <laughs> so if you're listening now and it doesn't make any sense where we're going from, apologize, but not really. Uh, thanks for hanging out. Uh, so where we had kind of left off was talking about zoos and whatnot and uh, then we talked about um, like preservation of animals and then like conservation <clears throat> conservation efforts right. um, so how do you see the roles of zoos That'll, 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 that'll show up a little bit in the recording. Good to be in uh, San Diego with lots of military presence. Um, how do you see the role of zoos in like animal preservation and conservation going forward and what have they been doing? So, I mean, the role of zoos has definitely evolved over the years as we talked about, you know, it was originally people just interested in the private collection of animals and then um, 
propagation of animals and um, then it was done more for entertainment and really for the past 25 years zoos have done a 180 where they really see themselves as um, aiding in research and conservation along with education so those are kind of the three bullet points that all nationally accredited zoos aspire for so um, we have over the years helped introduce a variety of species the giant panda native to china is no longer endangered it's only considered threatened now so that's great um, the san diego zoo pioneered a lot of the breeding um, and research that went along with studying like endocrinology super finicky about like doing they it are. in zoos well not just zoos in the wild as well they oh, only yeah. ovulate for like two days out of the year you know so getting pandas to breed is challenging and it's not just you know whether or not the female's ovulating it's whether or not they get along and the male knows what he's doing and so there's a lot of idiosyncrasies that go into breeding pandas um so luckily people take the time to really research that both in the wild and in human care what's nice about studying it in, when animals are in human care is that you're able to really isolate variables that are working or not working for those animals whereas in the wild you don't really know what variable is contributing to things so um, we were able to to really pioneer that and pass along that information to China and their researchers kind of picked picked the rest of it up and ran with it and um, they figured out that you're more laid-back docile pandas were not the ones to introduce back into the wild it really took the most aggressive bears who could fend off other potential leopards and predators in the environment to survive and ensure that their cubs survive as well so um, it's always a hard um, steep learning curve when it comes to introducing animals back into the wild particularly mammals compared to insects or birds or reptiles because a lot of their survival instincts are ingrained and um, there's less of them to learn from their parents. So um, when you are working with mammals, they can be really challenging to reintroduce back into the wild. But um, zoos successfully have been doing it for years. We've done it with the scimitar oryx in Tunisia. Um, it's basically a species of antelope with, you know, really, really big horns, hence, hence the name scimitar. Um, and uh, golden lion tamarind. It's a really tiny primate. The National Zoo in D.C. Oh, the big eyes. They have big eyes and they have bright color. They look like they have a, a mane on their face. They're, but super tiny, probably the size of like a coffee can. Um, the National Zoo helped a reintroduction effort of them down in the Amazon. So it happens every day. And what's sad is that zoos have become basically like these living arcs. It's this last sort of bastion of animals and preservation of um, as much genetic diversity as you can possible. Um, so in the off chance that entire species goes extinct, we can hopefully bring it back from the brink of extinction, whether it be if through breeding in or in vitro, if it's in a zoo. So it's kind of like a, a living collection of animals that are on standby if something were to happen to their wild counterparts. So that's... Yeah, it's an interesting position we're in because, as we mentioned before, like we're in a great extinction period. Mm -hmm. um, we're naming it after ourselves because we are very egotistical and we're probably creating it. <laughs> right. Yeah, six mass extinction since the last ice age, which was about twelve thousand years ago. So it's it's hard because this is this one's our fault. So you know the climate has varied for hundreds of thousands of years since the 
Earth has been in existence, but this is the first time where we've put so much carbon into the atmosphere that um, we don't really know what's going to happen, but we're bracing for the worst and trying to reverse some of that. So what are some practical things regular people could do day to day to try to help with, say, the climate change and raising money for conservation? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are lots of different ways you can get involved. Um, I would say the biggest thing is actually policy, so voting um, and voting for policies that help um, preserve animals and decrease our carbon footprint. Other things that you can do as an individual is just paying attention to the appliances you buy, anything that uses a lot of energy and electricity, your car, looking at the you know mileage it gets, or if you're thinking about switching to electric, trying to figure out how that might work. Sometimes continuing to use old appliances um, is actually better than buying a new appliance. So making sure you're using what you purchase for its entire lifetime, that can be really helpful. Um, not having children um, can be helpful. Um, not that you don't have to have any kids, but having fewer kids can be helpful. Um, it's probably the biggest decision that a lot of people make and um, will have the biggest impact moving forward in terms of consumption of resources. So um, considering how many kids you're going to have. Um, also, as you know, result, making birth control and other things more accessible to different populations throughout the world. That can be helpful so that we're being more purposeful in terms of how people plan their families. Um, other things that you can do would be um, buying locally so that there's a lower carbon footprint on the amount of time and energy that a product has to be shipped to you. Um, so there are a variety of things. You can go online and find lots of ways to lower your individual carbon footprint. Turning off the lights in a room when you're not in there. Um, little things to huge things like policy decisions can have a major impact. So what is your opinion on like hunting and let's say what was that dentist who went out and killed Cecil the lion but yeah, like raised a whole bunch of money for supposed conservation and like or when they go do rhino hunts for like a uh, out of breeding age rhino who's going around and like goring other young males and stuff like that and they can raise like $300,000 to you know have some rich person go and take out that animal like do you see that as a practical or efficient use of hunting? So I think if you're going to hunt it makes sense to do it with animals that aren't endangered and if you're planning on consuming that entire animal um, you know we kill animals on a mass scale you know with industrial farming uh, we do it on a mass scale to lower carbon footprint so we can produce more food with less land um, so that we are not destroying lands um, and I understand where we're coming from in terms of that perspective but um, in terms of the animals welfare in that factory farm it's not good um, so I think we need to reevaluate that so I always like to keep that perspective in mind when you're looking at hunting because a lot of people think oh hunting's so bad but then they're going to the grocery store and then they're buying something that is not very ethical for the animal a pound right. for like ground beef when, yeah. yeah yeah exactly so um, how do you think it was that cheap <laughs> exactly exactly so I think hunting can be done if it's can be good if it's done in a sustainable way but it often isn't um the u.s 
multiple times has learned its lesson in terms of overhunting something to the point of extinction, um, whether it be the buffalo or bison and wolves and sea otters, all of these animals play really crucial roles, crucial roles in our environment and how they um, affect the entire trophic scale in that ecosystem. So in terms of trophy hunting, endangered species, I think it's really irresponsible. I think it sets a dangerous precedent for the local communities in terms of who's allowed to hunt these animals and why. You know, if you live in a a local community in Kenya, why should some white, wealthy American be the only one to hunt those elephants? Um, And then you have to ask yourself, does the money that's being raised due to that trophy hunting, is it really going where they say it's going to go? oftentimes a lot of um, poaching and just hunting in some of these lesser developed nations ends up in really corrupt systems. So I would argue that an animal such as an elephant that's kept alive where you have ecotourism going on is going to actually make that country a lot more money by staying alive and bringing more people in over a longer period of time than bringing one hunter in to kill one animal that might be past a breeding age. It might be a problem animal, which is super rare. But yeah, you might have one rhino in 50 years that is going around hurting other rhinos or other endangered species. But, so hippos um, are just the biggest assholes? And they are just the biggest assholes. I love hippos. In fact, we just had a baby hippo born two days ago at the San Diego Zoo. You have to go see it. But Aren't they, like, ruthless? They, like, they kill even their own young, like, territorially? No? no? Not, not necessarily. Um, they are territorial for sure. Um, usually they just are trying to fend off other um, outside animals, people that come down to the waterways to collect water. Um, if they don't have running water in their hometowns and their villages. So um, they do kill a lot of people, but it's not because they're trying to eat humans. They actually eat plants. <laughs> That's all they really eat. Occasionally there are rare instances of them eating um, zebras that, or wildebeests that are crossing um, and drowned in some of these bigger waterways. Wait, it'll eat it? Yeah, it's really random. It's something that was discovered a few years ago where there were some case studies of hippos eating meat, which is really, really unusual. But They don't have the right teeth for that. What, <laughs> do they just swallow it whole? They rip off chunks and swallow it whole, yeah. Wow. It's weird. But anyway, yeah, going off on a tangent here, um, hippos do kill more people, uh, unless you're actually considering the mosquito, though, that passes malaria, malaria, and that kills more people for sure. So, yes, everyone likes to blame the hippos, and then after that, you know, elephants and rhinos can kill quite a few people, um, but it's it's really just due to conflict of space. Um, yeah. So. Speaking of mosquitoes, like, I remember, like, growing up, driving around, like, you'd always have, like, tons of bugs hitting your windshield, and you always have to, like, clean your car off after, Mm -hmm. like, a long car ride, and, like, now I feel like you don't have to do that as much, like, there's just, like, less bugs in the world. 95% of the animal kingdom, or maybe more, I might be misquoting, it might be more like 99, are insects. Uh, They're a very, very important part of not just the diversity of plants and animals that you see around you, but just the actual physical infrastructure, the amount of burrowing they do through soil and um, just such a huge biomass creates a a massive impact in the ecosystem. So there have been recent studies that have shown that there are fewer monarch butterflies on the West Coast that are migrating down to California, uh, down to Mexico to breed 
because they're running out of habitat space. So they specialize in eating milkweed as caterpillars, and uh, there are fewer the fewer of those milkweed fields that are around for them to inhabit. So that's a big issue. Bees, major pollinators. Lots of people are talking about bees and Save putting the bees. Uh, them on the endangered species list. Um, they pollinate. You know something like 60% of our food crops so massively important to human survival and existence and so if they go away we'll end up like China where they literally have people that they pay to go around with paintbrushes to help pollinate their flowers they're not as effective um, they yield a lower crop so um, it should be on everyone's radar you know that we should be careful about the insecticides that we use we should be careful about um, how we're using these bees there's recent research about them pollinating almond uh, groves, almond tree groves, where um, just having so many bees densely around each other spreads disease between them. And so they have colony collapse due to bee diseases. So it's kind of crazy, but... A buddy um, of mine was a nurse and he worked the night shift Mm -hmm. and he ended up actually quitting that job because he just had zero social life and Mm -hmm. he became a bee farmer in Nebraska. Wow. And he spends half of the year in Nebraska, like, taking the beehives around, like, those farm fields. Mm-hmm. And then they'll take them to, like, the Central Valley of California and to all the almond farms. And then they'll, like, work there for, like, six months and, like, yeah. pollinate all that. And so these, like, bees are being, like, shipped across the country back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. It's just, like, people <laughs> who um, get, you know, stuck in tight spaces with other people they're going to be much more likely to spread diseases with each other you know the kids going to preschool you know they don't have a strong immune system to begin with and then they're around all these other kids and they spread a bunch of germs around so you're taking these big populations of bees and moving them around the country and they're going to spread things to one another and it's going to contribute to colony collapse along with the pesticides that are associated with the farming so it's kind of a double whammy for them so is there anything we can do? <laughs> I know we kind of already said that, but like, holy moly. So like, I know it's less, kind of in, dire, there's right? less insects out there. The bees are dying without the bees. I heard something probably not real or whatever, but without bees, like we would pretty much all like starve to death in like, uh, like four or five years or something like that. Cause of like lack of pollination and et cetera. Yeah, so um, again, just being responsible with the chemicals that you use, and I keep going back to this, but policy, man, you know, that's going to regulate all of these industries that are affecting us on a much larger scale than maybe any one individual, Um, so. Does the zoo educate people on, like, good policies in their, say, local communities of things that they should or should not be voting on? Or, like, where would you get, like, an unbiased, like eco-friendly policy ballad to uh to vote upon i think a lot of it does fall on people for doing their own research there are different organizations like you know um, the nature conservancy the sierra club that do put out some good information about what's going on with um, local policy Um, it's interesting as a zoo and lots of zoos they try to on one hand, you know, not try to be get a, into apolitical, apolitical right? yeah. yeah, they try not to get into it too much. But um, there was recent word of our current administration wanting to do rollbacks with the Endangered Species Act, and that obviously directly impacts us and our work. And our entire vision is to end the fight against extinction. So 
Um, we actually did do a postcard campaign and an online campaign to get people to sign up to fill out a card saying that you support the current legislation, that you wouldn't like it to change, and that went to, um, I believe, our National Resource Council that was debating whether or not they were going to be changing the Endangered Species Act. So um, we did get involved with that. Um, we did put out kind of a marketing campaign on that. Um, so that that was uh, really surprising because actually like you said a lot of zoos try to stay pretty apolitical to appeal to as many people because they want to educate as many people about conservation they don't want people to think that they're only catering towards liberal environmental hippies you know um so i i can see it from both perspectives but when you have something as direct as the Endangered Species Act, the Migratory Bird Act, the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, those sorts of things that are being currently meddled with, yeah, it's going to take lots of organizations that typically are apolitical to stand up and say, you know what, this isn't working for us. And um, we have uh, the largest membership of any zoo in the country, probably the world, in terms of how many members that we have. Really? So we have um, a really great base of people who really care about the zoo and care about the environment. So that's one way that we can get information out is obviously to our members. So we also, a lot of people don't realize this, but more people attend zoos in a year in aquariums than professional sports games. If you take all professional sports teams, whether it's baseball, football, hockey, um, you know, if you want to throw in the Olympics, those sorts of things, MLS, um, here in the United States, um, more people attend zoos and aquariums every year. So the amount of people that you're able to reach in zoos and aquariums is really incredible. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to work at a zoo instead of going on for my PhD is because I could write a paper, published paper and, you know, really prestigious scientific journal, but how many people are going to read that paper? 20 nerds. Yeah, in the room. 20 nerds in the room. Exactly, <laughs> right? So, that's why I one of the reasons I why I instead of going into marine mammal research, I decided, you know what, um, I can get that messaging out to a lot more people and still work with animals and still participate in some level of research and still participate in some level of conservation while still reaching a huge audience. So, yeah. We at the San Diego Zoo have over 25 um, sorry, over 5 million visitors in a given year. So that's huge. And then that's just our facility. So you have to consider all the other zoos and aquariums around the world, and, or sorry, the U.S., when you're comparing those numbers. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Yeah, so it's a good reach. I, I really hope that we continue to grow. Um, where the zoo itself is only on about... 99 acres so it's not technically the largest zoo in terms of land area but when you include the safari park you know which is on thousands of acres um, we are one of the largest facilities in the world so we have about 4,000 animals at the zoo um, and of those animals it's about 680 species of animals that we care for um, that's still just a drop in the bucket in terms of the amount of plants and animals that exist in the world. So um, one of the major issues that zoos are having is that we just don't have enough space. You know, we want to breed all these animals and we'd like to increase our herd size and um, animal uh, collection, but um, it takes space to do that and it takes resources. You know, it costs a lot to feed all those animals. Um, so 
it's going to take collaborating just not with other zoos, which we are very active participants in um, in the U.S., but internationally as well. So it's a big push moving forward. How much do zoos, probably a lot, but I am not a professional, um, think about like how many cute, cuddly, like stereotypical, beautiful like creatures do we need to keep in the zoo so people will show up and then like weird, esoteric, ugly looking ones that maybe people don't uh-huh. want to like look at or whatever or like, oh, uh, like, yeah, like pandas bring people to the zoo, uh-huh. but we really need to save like this species of bird or oh, something. this yeah. over here, yeah. right? Like. Because, like, if pandas are no longer critically endangered, mm-hmm. like, will they ever leave the zoos or, like... Yeah, so <laughs> I think that there are certain animals that people just love that zoos will always have. It's funny that you use pandas as an example because our pan- pandas actually went back to China last April. So we don't have giant pandas at the San Diego Zoo right now in the process mm. of trying to renegotiate our contracts. I was there, I was our, there the other day yeah. and I didn't see any. Right. So uh, we have red pandas, which are um, not related to giant pandas, uh, but they eat a lot of bamboo. So when they were named pandas, I think that's part of the reason why red pandas and giant pandas got their names. So if you still want to see pandas, quote unquote, you can see red pandas. But if you're looking for the really cute black and white roly-poly pandas, um, we don't have them right now. You can see them at the... Atlanta Zoo, the Memphis Zoo, and the National Zoo in DC. And believe it or not, all pandas are owned by China. They're on loan from China. So we technically don't own them. So to have them anywhere in the world, you have to negotiate a contract with China. How does an entire country own the entire species? Like, cause all they were really good at low- regulating you know, the export of them from early on. So yeah. it was back in you know the 50s, 60s, you know, 70s when it was pretty easy to get a permit from a foreign country to import it into the U.S. And the U.S. wasn't as strict either. Um, China, because it's been one of their national symbols, national animal, like animals. We're going to own yeah. all of these We're going to protect these no pandas. They're ours. So, yeah. They're only found in China. So, um, it's millions of dollars, actually, to have a contract to exhibit pandas. And it's kind of frustrating in a way, from my perspective at least, because, you know, as an organization that helped pioneer so much of the conservation for them and not to have them anymore is frustrating. Um, but on the flip side, I can see why you'd want to try and renegotiate a lower contract, you know, because millions of dollars is a lot of money when it could be going somewhere else to help other species that are critically endangered. Yeah. So I, I get it from that perspective as well. So, yes, I think by getting people into the zoo to maybe see the giant panda, they're going to see other animals that they didn't even know existed. And then they're going to be stoked about those animals, too, and really passionate about preserving another species they didn't even know existed. Because part of it is, um, I'm going to butcher this quote, but you only, you know, preserve what you love. And um, if you don't know what you love, then you can't preserve it. So, yeah. Yeah. So, like, there's so much of this world that we still haven't explored. I mean, they're finding new species, like, all the time. Right. So, like, how many new species are, like, being put into, like, critically endangered and, like, going into zoos? Or, like, because we're not, like, breeding, like, mosquitoes. Obviously, that's a Uh terrible example, but, like, I don't know, dragonflies or something Uh like that. Like, are we breeding, like, insects and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, we do have um, a uh, stick bug breeding project. We have uh, 
particular species of butterfly breeding and reintroduction pro project. So yeah, we are working on reintroduction projects with insects, birds. Right now, for example, we have the um, a species of crow native to Hawaii that is, I think the numbers were down to like 20 or something ridiculous. Um, and we were able to participate in that reintroduction program. Um, our, one of our most well-known is the California condor. So there were only about 20 of those animals left in the wild and we pulled them all and um, bred them and re did a reintroduction program. And now they're about 440 in the wild. So really successful program that we're still participating in. Um, so like I said, birds, insects, reptiles tend to be easier to breed and reintroduce into the wild because they have a lot of um, strong innate instincts that allow them to survive once they're reintroduced. Um, we have a banded Fiji iguana exhibit um, breeding program where it's kind of like a head start program. We breed them, they hatch in human care, and then they're released into the islands of Fiji. So. Um, a lot of great work going on at the San Diego Zoo and other zoos will have other flagship species that they're working on. So yeah, it takes a village, as they say, to help a lot of these different species and bring them back from the brink of extinction. Let's try to end the conversation on more positive things. Sure. Um, what are some really big successes that the San Diego Zoo has seen sounds like the pandas going back to China is a good thing. So mm -hmm. what other good things have the zoos been doing? Yeah, I think uh, a new initiative for the zoo has been to help with local wildlife. So we've been so focused on working with species and governments in Asia and Africa and South America that um, maybe we haven't put as much effort as we should have into our own backyard and the species here. So I know that that's going to be a big push moving forward is really working on local wildlife programs. Um, I had mentioned the condors. Um, we have a really exciting project going on right now with our rhinos. So the southern white rhino is endangered but not extinct. But the northern right rhino is functionally extinct in Africa so there are only two females left and they're watched by guards around the clock so that they're not poached for their horns um, for the listeners that don't know a lot of people in different parts of the world think that rhino horn is medicinal and it's not um, it's kind of like Finger your fingernails nails, right it's um, just keratin ground up your fingernail and then <laughs> eat that so anyway, um, what we're able to do through in vitro um, fertilization and AI work is to basically take a southern white rhino surrogate mother and then take the egg and sperm from northern white rhinos and basically um, bring back northern white rhinos from the brink of extinction. It would just be the southern white rhinos that act as the surrogate moms. So. You essentially just dilute the percentage of northern to southern and then like isolate them so that they stay different kind of thing and so like they'll no. still be like part northern and part southern or not no, no technically yes as a basically surrogate mom there might be some exchange of blood and some cell tissue between the embryo and the mom but technically all of the genetic material of the embryo should be from a northern right rhino eventually 
But then where does the sperm come from if there's only two females left? That's already been collected and banked. Ah. So, yeah, that, that's already preserved. We have what's called a frozen zoo up at the Safari Park where our conservation program is based. So um, it's really cool. You have cell lines from lots of different critically endangered species, and that is to include the northern right rhino. So there are some researchers in Africa that have been working on it as well, and then we've partnered with some of those researchers to figure out the technology and the best way to do it. Um, Australia has been working on it as well. So, yeah. So are there white rhinos in captivity then? There are um, not a lot of northern white rhinos in captivity. So a lot of it's just preserved genetic material that's used to create the egg and sperm. Huh. Yeah, it's crazy test tube work. Yeah. <laughs> but you had asked about bringing back the woolly mammoth, right? So it's the same sort of process you would have to um, basically create an embryo and then implant it into an elephant or some other similar surrogate mm -hmm. and then you potentially could have a woolly mammoth which would be cruel because it's hot <laughs> but it'd be really cool but uh, then that poor animal would have no other woolly mammoths with, to hang you out just with. hang out with other elephants until you know you make more weird genetic robots <laughs> <laughs> just kidding um all right, well, um, what is like the best places to find, like if they don't live in San Diego or don't have mm -hmm. like, where's like, where do you find like where zoos are and how to, you know, learn more about environmental conservation and. Yeah, so the overall nationally accredited zoos in the United States are usually affiliated with the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. That's the most well-known organization. So um, if you go to aza.org, you can find out about local zoos in your area and basically what the entire program throughout the United States is working on in terms of species survival plans and whatnot, in um, terms of preserving animals in the wild and plants as well. Uh, so that's a really important obviously moving forward the more diverse our environment is the healthier it's going to be for both us and all the other plants and animals that reside in it so fingers crossed that people make a priority and um yeah whether it's making donations or being a member of your local zoo it's a great way to give back to conservation well my goal is to get a politician on the podcast so we can learn more about policies and how to read through all of this political mumbo jumbo so that we can vote appropriately so that we can actually make the change that we want to see in this in yeah. environment but totally. uh, until then uh, you are a wealth of knowledge well thanks for having me it on it was a great conversation and I can't wait to do it again yeah sounds good Greg all right have a good one let's add it out then Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Grow with Greg. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Gabriela Munoz. And if you want to learn a little bit more about uh, the zoo, uh, San Diego Zoo in particular, you can go to zoo.sandiegozoo.org. Um, if you want to get introduced to Gabriella, you know, reach out to me uh, via Instagram, Facebook, whatever, and uh, I'd be glad to connect you guys. And, uh, you know, looking forward to the next episode. And you guys keep being awesome. Talk soon.